Hello, welcome to another episode of the Grow Street Journal. Today I'm joined by Richard Hurley, Features and Debates Editor of the BMJ, formerly known as the British Medical Journal, one of the world's oldest general medical journals. Richard's responsibilities include commissioning and editing head-to-head debates, opinion pieces, journalistic features and the media features. Thanks. Hello and uh, thanks for coming in, Richard. Thank you, Francis. Um, thanks very much for having me. Great. So first off, I've got to ask you: Do you, do you have a morning ritual? Well, I'm I'm not very I'm not really a morning person, actually, Francis. So my morning ritual is just to to get up and get to work, which is uh, usually a very you know it takes as short as time as possible. Um, so I maybe have a cup of coffee have a shower, get dressed and go to work and that's it. And then everything else follows that. So that's about as, as ritualistic as it gets. Excellent. Very <laughs> practical to the point and the mark of a busy man. There's not a waste. Like. There's just not a single second wasted. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. And when did you start working for the BMJ? Well, actually, I've been there a long time. It's um, It was 16 years in January. Um, I started as a, a junior sub-editor and I've done several different jobs there since. But, um, yeah, some of my colleagues are sort of lifers. It's that kind of place. So um, it's slightly scary sometimes now. I wonder what life is like on the outside. But I'm very happy at the BMJ, but it's yeah, a long time. They must treat you well. It's a nice place to work. Um, I have incredibly supportive and uh, smart colleagues. And, yeah, I love my job. That's amazing. That's great to hear. And what would you say are the key objectives of the the BMJ? So our over overriding objective is to create a healthier world. That's our uh, you know mission statement. Um, and primarily, we want to achieve that by helping doctors to make better decisions. So a lot of what we do is to publish primary evidence on useful questions that doctors may have about how best to treat patients. Um, but we're also interested in public health and also very much interested in campaigning and um, policy and in changing policy where we think it could cause less harm or create more health, if you like. Okay. So where do these questions come from? Do they come from the doctors? Do they come internally? Uh, I guess from all over the place. I mean, we publish research done by academics in universities, but uh, um, doctors, there are, there are huge gaps in medical knowledge about treatments and um, and what have you, and people are researching those, and um, the best of that research gets into the BMJ, and hopefully um, fairly soon uh, is translated into guidelines and what have you, and doctors start using that evidence in their practice so that more patients uh, are, are treated better sooner and um, there's more health generated. Um, but also, uh, yeah, also we, uh, we're a campaigning journal, various different campaigns of all sorts related to academic work and to politics. Um, big contentious issue of the day, for example, you know, the assisted dying debate, that's something we're very active in, um, and also drug policy, obviously. Um, um, and I suppose these are, uh, well, they're, they're issues that other people are talking about and that we think are important enough to take on, given our remit of trying to create a healthier world. Great. Wow. That's a very worthy and broad cause. <laughs> yeah. How do you decide which policies and which side of the fence that you're, you're sitting on as an organisation? 
Well, we um, we have our aim to, to, to create a healthier world, but we also uh, have a fundamental belief in evidence and um, rational uh, decision making. So we hope that every uh, uh, every issue that we campaign on or uh, write about or uh, tell doctors about um, is is based on evidence and we also put a you know huge emphasis on ethical uh, practice on good ethical um, policy um, you know human rights um, and and we're you know we're not um, ide- ideologically um, wedded to anything we are very happy to revisit any issue and if evidence shows that we've got it wrong we would you know revise our position so um so yeah, we we we're really looking for evidence, and part of our camp, well, a lot of our campaigning on things like drug policy and assisted dying and on anything, is to call for more and better evidence on which we can base our decisions. Um, that's a big part of it. And just out of interest, what is the BMJ policy on assisted dying? So we're for uh, legal assisted dying within certain constraints, as per the the Maris Falconer bill. Um, that failed in Parliament a few years ago, which I think broadly says that um, people who are very close to the end of their lives and are uh, having a, a pretty terrible time should be able to, um, uh, within set criteria of you know being approved by two doctors and um, being of sound mind, should be able to choose to end their life. Um, we, we consider that that uh, is uh, the right thing. Uh, to do and there are, there are countries that already um, have similar laws to that or jurisdictions that have similar laws to that um, like the US state that's names just escaped me which one is it that's had it for 20 years I can't remember. There's a US state that's had assisted dying law, like exact. I mean, pretty much exactly the same as what was proposed here for 20 years, and all of the arguments uh, against it haven't haven't come haven't come to anything. You know, people say oh, disabled people will be uh, dispatched with, um, and uh, it will lead to you know it'll it'll balloon and um, uh, you know it'll creep into other things. It just hasn't happened. So. Uh, I mean, at the moment, given the evidence there is from other jurisdictions, um, it seems like it it could work here and it would mean that there would be less suffering. Um, So that's our stance. Well, your your evidence-based approach is incredibly refreshing. Um, Unfortunately, not something that we tend to see a lot of uh, throughout the world today when we we talk about a lot of um, current affairs and issues, which I'm sure we'll we'll touch on later when it comes to uh, drugs reform. So digging into your your role a little bit at the BMJ, so you're the editor and f- features and the head-to-head debates. So are you seeing, uh, kind of taking in the content and you're like the guardian of that content before it gets published out? Yes. Uh, yeah, uh, some of the content comes in, a small amount probably comes in speculatively. Um, people pitch ideas to me, journalists and academics pitch ideas. Um and we decide, you know, decide which ones we should pursue and how to how to handle them. So sometimes we might, you know, have a a, a piece authored by an academic. Sometimes we have particularly contentious issues. We might have academics arguing uh, the, the two sides. 
in evidence. We'd expect them to present evidence for their cases. You know, we don't just want a sort of um, a fee, you know, based on ideology or based on feelings so much. Um, and also commission journalists to write pieces if there's an issue that we want discussed in the journal. Um, um, find somebody who, who who can write a good piece for us that that our readers that will help our that will help our readers to understand the issue and um, and and ultimately help them to make better decisions and to help um, create more health is uh, ultimately. Um, and there's there's some absolutely fantastic content on there. Um, I've I've read through some of the articles on drugs policy reform um there's some very coherent and uh, convincing articles from uh, a range of commenters regarding prohibition um and as we've just touched on uh, the bmj it's a policy to take a balanced a balanced evidence-based approach so reading through all of the the literature around prohibition um and the kind of mass devastation it's it's caused in in a lot of areas and the prolific rise in kind of drug use um throughout the era of of prohibition are you still getting people um coming up arguing against prohibition do you find do you mean for prohibition so, yes sorry, sorry for prohibition yeah. yes uh, there are people who argue for prohibition, and I mean uh, you have to be very careful in lots of these things about uh, our terminology. I mean the BMJ in 2016 um, came out saying that we should look at legalizing drugs, and that that is uh, uh, effectively ending prohibition. Um, so that would not only decriminalize the use of all drugs. But it would mean that that supply was legal. I mean, we would want regulated, controlled supply that's appropriate to to maximise the reduction in harm. Um, so there are, there are lesser um, um, reforms that some people have, uh, some countries have undertaken, and and some people support where you might decriminalise the use of drugs. So drug users wouldn't be prosecuted, but the the supply uh, would remain um, a criminal activity, so which creates a, a strange world where it's legal to 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 use the drugs, but you have to go into the murky criminal world to to find them and to 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 buy them. Um, so is this the current situation in Portugal where they've decriminalised? So that's right, Portugal. 20 years ago, something like that, 2001, decriminalised uh, all drug use. Um, so it, re- it it technically retains prohibition, um, um, but, uh, uh, but, but people are no longer um, uh, subject to criminal justice processes if they are, you know, found or if they are using drugs. Um, so it's much more... Uh, focused on health um, and where people have got drug problems. Uh, it's about referring them to um, treatment services and counselling services and so on, um, rather than a criminal justice approach. But the supply of drugs remains criminal activity um, can be prosecuted uh, under criminal law. Um, it's a rather interesting position to be in. It's almost like the law is acknowledging that uh, it's one way or another people are going to be using drugs um 
Yeah. I think it's, it's a great step in terms of treating the drug user um, as a patient in, in terms of a criminal. Um, if it's been in play for almost 20 years, there must be data um, that they're getting from this and, and what was it shown? Has it been a success? There, there are uh, data, and um, uh, 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 very broadly speaking, um, I think that the data. I mean, there were huge problems with heroin deaths in Portugal. I mean, we're seeing huge deaths uh, from heroin in and and opiates in our country. I think they've they've gone they've gone through the roof. We had the most um, heroin deaths ever recorded in in the last statistics that came out. Um, and this change in Portugal meant that, I guess, ultimately, these things alone, this policy reform alone, um, it, it may not be responsible for everything we see, but it makes a whole load of other things easier. So, for example, drug addicts, can uh, heroin injectors can get clean needles, get treatment, get counselling without fear of um, being prosecuted if you remove the the if if you decriminalise drugs. So the decriminalisation in itself may be not may not be what uh, what changes uh, uh, the situation, but it enables a whole load of other activities to occur, um, which which otherwise might be um, much harder. So the the data seem to show um, that. Um, uh, the uh, drug deaths in Portugal have dropped to almost zero. I understand, or from from heroin injector injecting, and um, and there was, you know the worries that it would ins- uh, inspire or uh, encourage more and more people to take drugs. And I think broadly speaking, that hasn't been borne out. Um, but uh, you know, um, I think if you if you break it down and look at different subsets of the population, you might see that in some um, sections drug use has risen, but overall there's more health uh, it seems fewer people are dying fewer people are ill treatment services are more available you know i think we should um treat 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 the harm rather than the practice um i think that's what the, the bmj would say so it's very encouraging what portugal has done and um other countries are certainly looking to Portugal. It's held up as an exemplar of uh, of how other countries might change their drug policies to to you know to um, reduce the harm that not that comes from drugs. Although we you know we agree that drugs are harmful, we wouldn't condone drug using. But uh, um, prohibition uh, causes causes. A huge amount of harm in itself, and um, we can We we've got a, a choice, and we're able to minimise that. We're able to reduce that. Portugal shows. Mm. Yeah, well, it's fascinating. Do they have? Do you know plans to evolve this into a fully regulated supply system, or are they quite happy with their their current system? I don't. I don't know that they do. I uh, I was at a conference this week about medicinal cannabis, and I understand that because that's another another area another another thing and i think portugal's got plans to um to bring to, uh, to bring that um to make that legal it's not currently um but in terms of legalizing the supply i don't i don't know that they would do that or have a plan to do that and certainly i mean it's a complicated world and legal framework but the united nations has these treaties which conventions from the 1960s and onwards and they um 
they they are what enforce prohibition. So within those treaties that the United Nations that the countries have signed up to, um, countries uh, uh, um, they say that countries must prohibit drug use, but they don't say they have to make it a crime. So Portugal by by decriminalising drug use. Um, can retain prohibition in line with these UN treaties, um, uh, but do something different. Were it to legalise the supply, it would be in breach of these UN conventions, and you know that's uh, and a whole other ballpark and and a difficult situation to get into. Saying that, where you've got uh, states in the US where there are legal cannabis markets, they're they're in in breach of UN conventions. So, you know, you've got the world's superpower there that's a huge part in setting these conventions and its federal government doesn't support legal supply of drugs, but its own states are are breaching international legal treaties, which is a ridiculous situation, it seems. Absolutely, yeah. You have kind of reports of legitimate businesses being taken down by the DEA and such like... Um, and they're operating completely within the, the refines of their local jurisdiction, which is, which is quite bizarre. So these UN conventions, um, you said there, there are three conventions relating to um, drug drug use? That's right. Yes, there are three. Okay, <laughs> dating back to the 1960s. I think the first one is 1961. Um I don't. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. I can tell you much about the different treaties without without looking at some information. Um, so I read some of the information yeah, you, oh good. you sent to oh me. Good. That and, helps me. Um, what's What's surprising is the uh, you could look at it in the way that the UN have the same position as the BMJ themselves, right? They They want to advance human health and wealth and welfare. So. But it's clear that you have polarizing beliefs on how that should be executed in in practice. So it seems bizarre to me that they they believe the um, they need to ban um, these drugs: heroin, cannabis, cocaine. The reason for the conventions is that they think banning this drug use uh, will lead to a steady reduction in their use and the damage that they cause. So. I mean, gosh, how far are we on from the 60s, 40, 50, nearly 60 years? Have they at any point, like you alluded to earlier, you said the BMJ, evidence-based approach, you're always open to new ideas. If someone comes and says, hey, look, we have 60 years of data and evidence to show that this thing is a dreadful failure and doesn't work in terms of your own um, aims of advancing human health and welfare, I'm pretty sure you guys would, would look at that. Have, do you know if they've gone back and looked at this? I mean, it seems bizarre that this has gone on for so long without any kind of evolution of those um, of those practices as the evidence base has, has increased. I, I think absolutely things uh, ha- are changing, have changed, but incredibly slowly. And the the nature of the united nations is that it's whatever 190 is it member states who have to agree these things so while some states are very progressive um, um, about exactly the things you're saying by far not all of them are um, you know including the united states for example i believe so i went um two years ago to the uh, un um special session general assembly on on the world drug problem and 
I'm led to believe that, uh, well, there were, it seemed to me a very positive vibe. There were countries like Portugal, some South American countries, people, a lot of countries uh, are fed up with the uh, the cost and the lack of progress. The, the amount of money that's spent on trying to control drugs, the huge amounts of harm that are happening anyway, drug use is going up, drug deaths are going up, something's got to give. So lots of countries there, health ministers and other officials, making very bold and progressive statements to, to that end. But... Um, uh, and very different, I understand, to the to the meeting that was a few years before that. I can't, I don't know exactly what date that was offhand. But the 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 previous General Assembly on the world drug problem, the overarching theme was, uh, you know, uh, um, you know, towards a drug free world. That was the ambition that drugs would be, you, you know, completely um, done away with. That was the aim, which obviously is, you know, hasn't happened, isn't going to happen. Um, so there were, I think people felt that there was a real change in 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 attitude at this UN meeting. So that's kind of positive thing and that's that that's good. But there are still countries including the United States, um the United Kingdom, I expect, um and you know, uh Russia, China, um perhaps um Middle Eastern countries to name just a few, who uh, have very entrenched views that drugs are bad and that the only response is to ban them um, and who have a more ideologically based position for whatever reason. So the difficulty is in changing or, or, or repealing those treaties that uh, you know it's got to be negotiated among all those countries and countries like Russia just say no. Right, so for, for that to change, all of these countries have got to agree and it's probably got to have some level of unanimous decision. And I can only imagine the level of uh, politics that, that would be going on in, in terms of these decisions. So it doesn't really seem like something that we can count on in the short term, having the kind of impact to, to help people that need access to these medicines or um, need support around them if they are abusing drugs. So to what extent do you think that the current UN conventions and the policies are linked with the UK position on on prohibition? Do you think that the UN would have to change first or could a, could the UK, if there was enough momentum built up, kind of go it alone? It's a good question. I mean, there are uh, states that uh, are, are in breach of their treaty rights, as I understand, Um uh, you know there are states of uh, of in in America that um, have legal cannabis markets. Um, that's a breach of the conventions. Um, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't think it seems like a good idea for countries to be um, violating international law. Um, you know, once you start uh, accepting that, um, what other laws could countries? start violating just so we don't feel like um, you know meeting our treaty obligations anymore we're just going to do what we like it doesn't seem like a great way to proceed but I don't know other countries are looking at legal markets Canada this year is in isn't it very soon a couple of months probably is going to um, allow legal medicinal and recreational use of cannabis in breach of the treaties, um, I guess it's it, it, it. We remain to see what happens. Um, other countries may. I mean, I think other countries are also talking about it. Is Germany one? Um, yeah. Um, Switzerland. I think you can buy 
CBD bud flowers, of course, non-psychoactive yeah. part of the flower. Yeah. Um, yeah. Whereas the CBD in England is um, is legal if it's been processed okay. and isolated. But I think Lidl have just started a <laughs> CBD bud <laughs> range wow. available in, in Switzerland. Yeah. Um, and Canada, so that's interesting. I didn't, yeah, I'd never thought of it in the way that they're actually violating this UN convention yeah. by going ahead and... The well, big that's pretty... Ma- sorry. Oh, go on. I mean, that's pretty major. It's a G7 mm. country, isn't it? A Commonwealth country um, with massive international standing. It's not a rogue state and it is going to be, yeah, in breach of its UN treaty obligations. What what response that uh, that leads to, I don't know. I don't know what the UN was says about it um, and what other states say about it. Um, but it doesn't seem a satisfactory position when, you know, uh, our... Uh, uh, you know, stable um, democracy partners are going around breaching their treaty, treaty obligations, international law doesn't seem like a good situation. It doesn't. I, I accept where you're coming from, that it's never a good to be breaching uh, an international policy in that way, even if it is, you know, perhaps what you could call for the greater good. I accept that can be a very slippery slope. Um, in the case of Canada, though, the, the big difference I see between the UK and Canada is the perception of the public when it comes to things like cannabis. So in Canada, years ago, before it was legalised, it, it's very, been very, very liberal there to the point where it's it's almost just accepted, right? So I feel like them making this update in their law is really them just acknowledging what ev- everyone's already known. Um about kind of cannabis consumption in in Canada um but by choosing to legalize it they are going to see um their government vaults start filling up with um cannabis taxation which which is another reason I don't really understand why countries like Portugal I absolutely commend them all of those years ago being so uh, bold and forward thinking to decriminalize that's a, that's an amazing huge step that has the data is telling us has made a real difference on on health. I just don't understand why then you would leave all of that money on the table. And I think the latest figures show that the organised crime is worth globally an estimated two hundred sixty billion pounds. Two hundred sixty billion pounds. So, like to put that into perspective, Microsoft's annual uh, turnover is ninety billion dollars. Right. So. Right. You have a you have a huge kind of corporate corporation bigger than Microsoft, Apple, which is this illicit yeah. drug world, and um, it seems like by acknowledging that the drug use is going to happen and seeking to re- reduce the harm, um, that you would also look to to control the supply and clean all of that money and bring it into the system. Sounds sensible. Um to look at the evidence and con- and, and and yeah, to consider that, and that's certainly why the BMJ has has argued since 2016 that carefully we should look at legalised markets in all drugs um, carefully and we should appraise evidence to see what the impact is on health and on crime um, and and if it leads to, to more health and less harm then it's something that uh, seems sensible to do, you know. Um, and the other advantage as well as taxation is that you can regulate, you can take drugs out of uh, arenas where children may um, 
be exposed to them. You can control the advertising, you can control the quality and the dosing of drugs. You can provide where drugs are are made available, um, education services and treatment, access to treatment services. Um, So you've got a sort of comprehensive um, package of policies and measures that puts people first, their human rights first and their health first. Sounds very very (laughs) sensible, gosh. Sounds like a utopian place I'd love to live. In theory. (laughs) Yeah. So we've talked about kind of the UN and the the policies and just general politics getting in the way of an evidence-based approach. I guess there's there's other stakeholders in this this discussion as well. To what extent do you think that uh, healthcare providers and practitioners should or could be having a say in this this debate? Well, more and more... um, certainly doctors are are having a say in healthcare practitioners um in 2016 i mean a lot of a lot of things seemed to happen in 2016 there was this big un meeting um where where, where there seemed to be a, a a change in attitude among a lot of countries towards this this problem and the and the meeting itself was framed in a different way than it had been before it wasn't it was no longer about just eradicating all drug use but more about accepting that drug use is a uh, uh, always going to be a part of of, uh, of human life, and it's um, um, we we need to do what we can to to, to minimise the harm associated with it, rather than um, just try and uh, uh, you know idealise that we can get rid of it completely. But at that same year in the UK, um, the Royal Society for Public Health, uh, which represents um, directors of public health and doctors and other um, professionals working in that area, um, came out with a report recommending that um, the decriminalisation of all drug use in the UK. Um, and also, uh, the, the the report was co-authored by the Faculty of Public Health, which is a, an independent um, um uh, a similar group uh, that's connected to the Royal College of Physicians. Um, and that same year at the BMA's annual meeting, the BMA is the Doctors' Trade Union, it's my employer as well, it owns the British Medical Journal, um, they came out and agreed with this stance very quietly. There's a lot of nervousness um, around this issue. There's a there's a general feeling among some of these um perhaps a little bit conservative organisations, they're representing doctors, you know, they've got to be held in the highest regard, Um, they've got to be careful about getting it, you know, getting it right, about reducing harm, not causing harm. Um, And I think it's fair to say a lot of nervousness around what the Daily Mail, um, for example, might say, what the public might say um, about this, how it looks. Uh, for right, rightly or wrongly, um, and that year is when the BMJ came out, and we came out uh, sort of taking it a bit further and calling for cautious use and exploration of legal markets to to, to achieve the, the same aims. Um, and since then, very recently, the Royal College of Physicians, I think this is a, a, another major step for, for our readership, for doctors. This is a hugely influential um, um, body that represents a lot of doctors, and they came out in support of the decriminalisation last month. Um, and we're now seeing, uh, I understand, that other royal colleges which represent other um, medical specialties are also talking about this. So we may very well see a sort of domino effect where um, 
a lot more medical organisations, doctors' organisations, professional organisations come out in support um, because the evidence is overwhelming um, that uh, that um, decriminalisation is is uh, is the right way to go. Um, but it's a little bit of a, a you know a slow process. Mm. How much influence do you think these bodies hold with with the government? I I think they hold a considerable amount of um, um, sway actually. Um, one of the I I I think that the the government has previously used the fact that doctors don't support reform uh, as a reason for even you know not discussing it. Um, but if you have if you have uh, law uh, you know law enforcers. Uh, if you have um, uh, legal professionals and if you have medical professionals who are trusted, um, you know we trust doctors. We we trust that you know that they they have our best interests at heart. They their motivation is to reduce harm to maximise health. If doctors are coming out and saying that drugs should be decriminalised, then I think you know the government really should listen to that. And I think. A secondary aspect is that these organisations, the BMJ, uh, the journal I work for, the, and the the BMA um, that represents all the, the the doctors in the UK, 160,000 doctors in the UK, Royal College of Physicians, these faculty, the Faculty of Public Health, the Royal Society for Public Health, they haven't been lynched by the tabloid press. Um, it barely batted an eyelid, to be honest. So I think the the sense is that the the public have moved on from this a little bit. It isn't a huge, scary um, issue that that you know we, we we can't talk about and we can't we can't move on at all. And I, I think government is just a little bit behind um, that that um, that change among the public. But um, the more they see that organisations are coming out and saying, well, like you know, heroin deaths are the highest they've ever been, and that is. It, to some extent, down to prohibition. Um, you know, other countries have almost were. You know, all other countries which also had high deaths now have none because if they've reformed their policy. When doctors are coming out and saying that, you can't just bury your head in the sand. You have to start looking at what can we do about these poor people who are dying. Absolutely, and for a doctor to go on record and say this, and for these bodies to go, you, you're right. They are putting their head above the parapet. There, um, they. Yeah, they have a lot to lose from um, in terms of credibility and reputation if they were wrong about it. So the indication is, if they are doing that, that the evidence has to be you know, pretty certain um, in in favour of them following Absolutely. this. Yeah, and it's interesting <coughs> you mentioned Excuse kind me. of tabloids like the Daily Mail. So I, I mean, they're they're loving it in a way. Every every other article I see is uh, cannabis oils cured this person, that person. That may be misinforming people around the, the therapeutic values between CBD and, and THC and the other compounds of the plant. So, okay, there may still be the misinformation there, but I almost think that they're doing a service in terms of desensitizing people and undoing lots of the previous propaganda around, uh, in, in particular, cannabis being a, a very scary drug, something that can you know, leave you out on the streets in a, in a wreck after a, a couple of puffs. I think people are really starting to come around by seeing it in, in the tabloids, the the, um, the mad kind of rise of, of CBD in, in, in the country and the popularity of that. You've got a lot of people that have never 
smoked cannabis before um never been interested in in that side of it but there certainly seems to be much more awareness around the medicinal properties of it now which which has got to be a good thing and and i almost wonder has it been the public informing the doctors um to to some regard in this because I always think a lot of the doctors, and it's no secret, the the NHS is kind of hugely under-resourced. Um, and so the doctors, as you say, right, they're trying to save people's lives from day to day. Um, keeping up with current medical knowledge is, is challenging enough within the currently accepted drugs that they're using, let alone um, looking into research that's done about um, some plant that's that's been illegal for decades. So it's it's an interesting one as to, you know, how much of the role actually do, do us citizens have to play in this in this debate as well? It's all about public opinion. Um, if the government thinks it will be re-elected by making these changes, then surely it will make those changes. But I, I guess it's just how important it thinks, you know, how much of a vote winner it thinks they are. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of groups, uh, uh, you know drug users are marginalised, vulnerable to some extent, um, people who, who, who lack a voice, are stigmatised um, um, to some extent. I mean, I think it's really interesting what you, what you were saying, and I think uh, that the, 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 the tabloids as a barometer of public opinion is really interesting. Um, we also, uh, you know, express extreme caution about medicinal claims um, for cannabis There's, and, and other substances. Um, there isn't a lot of evidence there. There's a lot of emotion, and um, you know we also have to remember that um, patients deserve to have honest and fair information, clear evidence about what we know and what we don't know. So um, it may be that their cannabis has the potential to help in some conditions. There is some evidence, but um, it may also cause harm. But we need to know, you know. What, where the ba- the balance of benefit and harm lies, so that people can make uh, their own uh, decisions, um, and so we can can help them. Um, so CBD, I, th- I believe, has has been permitted um, for sale or oil in this country, CBD oil, but no medical claims are allowed to be made about it. You know, because the evidence isn't there um, in 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 a rigorous enough form for it to be. Uh, um, for us to be sure uh, of the, the the balance of risk and harm for 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 a drug, so um, it's a sort of nutraceutical. I understand is the word that I've heard used, or a, a wellness product. I had I had food supplement, or which is nowhere near as uh, yeah, <laughs> lovely absolutely. as that word. Absolutely. That was that's a great <laughs> word. Oh. But yes, no, you're you're right, and it's it's absolutely crazy in the in the, the market right now, and there's. Not that many people seem to be adhering to the MHRA regulations that that it's only to be sold as a, as a food supplement. You can't make any medical claims. I mean, the market is flooded with companies selling yeah. questionable products. I think I saw a study that was like up to seven out of ten tests of lab reports are you know don't not showing accurate quantities of of the CBD that's advertised on the label. And um, you've got medical claims kind of left right and center so it's it's a tricky position i mean do you well it's yeah it's uh it's not good for for patients not good for the public um and and the part of the problem is uh, i i think that um 
with cannabis's status as a controlled drug, it means it's very difficult to do the research or harder to do the to get the licenses to do the research to find um, evidence so that we can we can be honest and open about um, what cannabis does. Um, and and you know there are so many different compounds within the plant. Um, how exactly each one of those um, affects uh, humans is um, you know we don't know. Mm, and it, I hear this crutch quite a lot. Of, well, there's no there's no evidence to show that it helps with this that or the other. There's quite a lot of evidence, but I guess there's a scale of evidence, isn't there? There's there's lots of small studies that have been done um, because as you say and it's, it's a controlled schedule it's, it's incredibly hard to actually perform the um caliber of studies that i think people in the in the medical world need to accept so i think there's there's been a lot of small scale studies that have showed positive results so it's just completely bizarre that we're not saying yeah. well we need we need the full picture to be able to make an informed decision there are a lot of difficult questions around this, um, you know, and there's certainly very strong anecdotal evidence. You know, these um, two uh, children who've been in the news recently who have, you know, or it seems clearly benefited, I think, both with epilepsy from um, um, from taking cannabis um, for their symptoms. Um, but, you know we have to remember that vulnerable patients um you know and especially children uh need we need full information about what these products products do i think i mean they're all you know if you start um saying we'll make an exception for cannabis then you could start making an exception for all sorts of treatments and say well, well we don't really know um whether it's you know what the harms are what the benefits are really but it seems like it works and there's you know obviously a lot of emotion around it um that that also seems unsatisfactory but the way to proceed is to make it easier to do research into these compounds so that they can be um um, standardized and um and so they can be researched properly and investment in research totally and there is no lack of anecdotal evidence out there which i accept you know it sh- shouldn't be taken as gospel by any means but in a world where we're not able to do studies i think it's very indicative that it's helping a lot of people and that there is potential there we just need to drill into you know how best yeah. that that potential is is uh is reached but it's yeah it's, it's bizarre that we say well, this is this is a drug that's that's controlled, um, therefore you can't do any studies on it. But um, the whole range of pharmaceutical drugs, or even things like caffeine, and things that affect our bodies every day, that are just kind of accepted um, without without a second thought. Yeah, I don't think it's controversial in medical circles among doctors and their their, their doctors organisations that um, if there are therapeutic benefits then they should be you know they should be researched there's no ideological reason not to look at, uh, at the, the the compounds in cannabis you know uh, specifically if, if if they could help people then we should I mean you could argue that we have an ethical duty to um, to, to explore that I mean the same applies to other drugs I think as well psychedelics you know may have use in in treatment but uh, it's much harder to do that research because uh, because of their controlled status mm. okay and just just finally um, if we were to decriminalize um, drugs in in the UK 
from what we've seen of Portugal, what sort of impact could we expect um, on the NHS in terms of this? And obviously, there would be a cost associated with um, having people trained and available to, to care for these people. You've got the costs of the needles, potential safe spaces. You know, this is going to cost quite a bit of money. Do we know in terms of Portugal, has there been... A ret- obviously, you've got the, the healthcare side of things, which potentially is harder to put a number on, but is, of course, of, of the most importance. Is there any kind of um, return they see on that money in terms of the investment? I, I don't know that offhand, but, I mean, you... Francis quoted earlier a figure of is it 260 billion yeah. that's spent on control, global drug control. Yeah. I mean, if you weren't doing that, you'd have 260 billion to invest in education, treatment services, um, whatever else. Um, yeah. So, I, I mean, I guess they treatment. are um, saving money. Question? Yeah, yeah. I'm just thinking. I'm trying to put my, my my thinking hat onto the other side of, of why this wouldn't be a good idea, which is which is quite difficult. I think it would save money. Yeah. I mean, I don't have the I don't have the, I'm not. It'd be good to look. I'm, the data must be there for Portugal, um, but I I imagine it would save save huge huge amounts of money. It would uh, certainly if we're legal markets, you could raise tax through them as well. Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting thing to look at. I mean, because it creates a, an incentive then for governments to um, sell even more uh, or for more drug sales to occur and I think you have to be careful about that I and mean, I also think that you know we've got quite a lot of experience about some legal drugs alcohol and tobacco and you know we've made big mistakes around those substances which we should learn from um, um, you know they cause huge harm um, massive yeah it's it's bizarre an alien coming in and landing on the earth we, we'd have a difficult time explaining our our logic to but, them, I think. But arguably, they would cause even more harm if they were prohibited completely, because their use would carry on, <laughs> as as you know, we have historical, um, well, and current um, uh, case studies that that support that view. And there's been a theme throughout this conversation, which which has been really interesting to me, and and it's around differentiating drug use and drug abuse. And I think a lot of people don't do that. And I think you've touched on a few times in our conversation around, well, and I think even in Portugal, decriminalisation, they've actually seen drug use go up, only a small amount. Um, So on the surface, you could say, oh, there's more people using drugs. But the actual drug use isn't inherently causing any negative effect. It's the actual drug abuse. It's the users that go on to abuse it that is causing damage to themselves and and society. So it's it's interesting if we can foster an environment where people are educated, um, use is moderated or encouraged to be moderated. It seems like it's a a common sense world that accepts drugs are going to be used and tries to minimise the the risk and harm. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of challenges in that. And I think, I mean, I think the BMJ stance would be that it doesn't think people should take drugs i mean they're 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 harmful um but um people are going to and adults should um you know have full information and we should have policies that reduce overall harm and maximize health so i i i completely take your point that some people um um drink um um moderately and enjoy it and um 
and and lots of people um, can do the same with with drugs and for some people they 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 have a, a different um, um, pattern of use which uh, is more harmful um, but uh, it's that it's that's a uh, you know difficult area to say where that starts and stops and for who um, who who it's abuse and who it's abuse so um, but definitely something that that should be thought about. I mean, there's a strange sort of moral dimension as well, isn't isn't there, to this whole debate about sort of right and wrong and um, that those sorts of distinctions feed, feed into that. I mean, for some people, they think drug use is wrong. I mean, sort of moral wrong. Um, so for them, this distinction doesn't doesn't make any sense. But um, yeah. Interesting. Mm, a complex and fascinating topic. Richard, thank you very much for, for joining me today. It's been a, a very interesting conversation. Thank you for having me, Francis. Uh, you're most great. welcome. I'm glad. Uh, thank you, lovely listeners, for tuning in. If you actually have any questions for Richard, um, I'm sure he might be able to field them on, on Twitter. Um, so get in touch and we can, we can continue the discussion. Thank you very much, as always, and it's been great to have you along.